for today, I want to draw upon the well-known idiom of the proof is in the pudding from a prophetic perspective. And this because of the overwhelming preponderance of evidence that according to Bible prophecy, we prove, according to Bible prophecy, that we are at the very end. Actually, Bible prophecy is explicit in this regard, foretelling that at the time of the end, a growing number of people will turn from the truth, refusing to hear the truth. But the proof of that truth is in the pudding, as it were. Let me begin with a definition and explanation of the meaning of this idiom. The proof is in the pudding is an expression that means the value, quality, or truth of something that must be judged based on direct experience with it or on its results. The expression is an alteration of an older saying that makes the meaning a bit clearer. The proof of the pudding is in the eating. In other words, things must be judged by trying them yourself or seeing them in action, rather than on other factors such as hearsay. Another variation of the term is the proof of the pudding, which refers to the results themselves, or the testing of something to judge its value or truth. In these sayings, the word proof was originally used in the sense of a test of something, such as a test of quality, worth, truth, etc. However, and please listen, it is now interpreted as meaning the same thing as keyword evidence. These expressions are applied to a wide variety of scenarios. They're often used in the context of offering evidence for a particular argument or noting that a judgment can't be made until the final result. Here's the truth. The truth is we have the final result. The jury is no longer out. The verdict is now in. And as such, a judgment can be made based on the evidence. In other words, the proof is in the prophetic pudding concerning the resulting evidence, specifically of a turning from sound doctrine. Not only does Bible prophecy tell us that in the last days, great numbers will turn from the truth, we're even told why they do that. First Timothy chapter 4, the first two verses. 
the Spirit, Holy Spirit, explicitly says, clearly says, that in latter times, some will abandon the faith and follow deceiving spirits and things taught by demons, doctrines of demons. So they're going to turn, last day's sign, uh, prophecy, a last day's prophecy, a marker, a characteristic of the last days. There will be some that will turn from the faith and turn to doctrines of demons, deceiving spirits, deceiving spirits. Such teachings come through, this is pretty strong, but it needs to be, hypocritical liars whose consciences have been seared as with a hot iron. Second Timothy chapter 4, the first four verses. The Apostle Paul, by the Holy Spirit, writing to Pastor Timothy, a young pastor, says, in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who will judge the living and the dead, and, and I want you to pay particular attention to this delineation, in view of His appearing and His kingdom. Stop. Did you catch that? His appearing is the rapture, His kingdom is the second coming. They're not synonymous in terms. They're not one and the same. In other words, Paul, by the Holy Spirit, is saying to Timothy, in light of, in view of the rapture, the appearing, and the second coming, I give you this charge. Verse 2, preach the Word. Be prepared in season and out of season. Correct, rebuke, and encourage with great patience. I'm still working on that one. And careful instruction. And here's why, verse 3. For the time will come, that time has already come, when men will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. And here it is again, verse 4, they will turn their ears away from the truth and turn aside to myths, fables, lies. Question. Is what we are seeing now specific to this last day's prophecy we just read coming to pass in the world today? The answer is an astounding yes. And the proof is in the results or perhaps better said, as Jesus said, 
the proof of the root is in the fruit. Matthew's Gospel, chapter 7. I'll begin reading in verse 15. And I want to point out something here, easily missed at first read. Jesus speaks to deception, deception, when He says, verse 15, watch out for false prophets. Don't be deceived by them. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ferocious, ravenous wolves. Well, how are we going to know? Verse 16, by their fruit you will know them. By their fruit you will recognize them. Do people pick grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Likewise, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, and a bad tree cannot bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, by their fruit you will know them. The proof of the root is in the fruit. Well, what follows are results proving. <laughs> there are results of a recent nationwide survey conducted by the Cultural Research Center at Arizona Christian University. It bears the title, American Worldview Inventory 2022, release number five, shocking results concerning the worldview of Christian pastors. Here are a couple of quotes. A new nationwide survey among a representative sample of Americans' Christian pastors shows that a large majority of those pastors do not possess a biblical worldview. In fact, just slightly more than a third, 37 percent, have a biblical worldview, and the majority, 62 percent, possess a hybrid worldview known as syncretism, the blending of ideas and applications from a variety of holistic worldviews into a unique but inconsistent combination that represents their personal preferences. More than six out of ten pastors, 62 percent, have a predominantly syncretistic worldview. While it is shocking to discover that a large majority of Christian pastors do not possess a biblical worldview, pastors are more likely than any other population segment studied by the Cultural Research Center at Arizona Christian University to embrace this life philosophy. Well, that explains it. No wonder, no wonder 
Hmm. Well, it gets worse. You okay? In a subsequent release on August 30th, they found that at least a third of senior pastors in the United States believe one can earn a place in heaven by simply being a good person. <sighs> Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, which apparently they're not preaching, says, we are saved by grace through faith. It is the gift of God. It is not of works, lest any man should boast. But again, I, not to excuse it, but perhaps in some ways to explain it, if they have this syncretistic worldview that's a hybrid of all the other woke worldviews, then wouldn't it stand to reason that you would have to adopt and embrace such heresy? Still quoting, at least a third of those surveyed also said they believe socialism is preferable to capitalism. The current report reveals that a shockingly large percentage reject biblical teaching on some of the most basic Christian beliefs. They've abandoned the truth. They've abandoned the fundamental, foundational truths of Scripture. Another 39% of evangelical pastors surveyed said, there is no absolute moral truth, and that each individual must determine their own truth. Roughly the same percentage, 38%, didn't answer in the affirmative when asked if, quote, human life is sacred, while 37% said having faith in general is more important than in what or more specifically whom one has faith. Perhaps most startlingly, still quoting, three in 10 evangelical pastors, 30%, did not answer in the affirmative if their salvation is based on having confessed their sins and accepting Jesus Christ as their Savior. If this is true, and it absolutely is, then it should not come as any surprise that the last day's church is in the condition it's in today. And we need look no further than these aforementioned pastors who turn people's ears away from the truth and instead have turned aside to these myths. And if this weren't bad enough, sadly, 
this prophecy presupposes that these pastors, I want you to think about this, that prophecy in 2 Timothy and 1 Timothy 4, 2 Timothy 4, it has packaged with it the presupposition that there will be these pastors that are all too willing at the ready to say what one's ears are itching to hear, and they are. Listen to what A.W. Tozer had to say about itching ears. In the church, many are lovers of pleasure more than lovers of God. We talked about that last week, 2 Timothy chapter 3, 1 through 5. You got to love Tozer. I love Tozer. Not all the time. Both him and, and Chambers, I, I have a love-hate relationship with their writings, you know, where <laughs> it's kind of like you walk away from it going, that's, I'm not going to read this anymore. It's, no. Uh, and then you're drawn back by the Holy Spirit, rightfully so, because they tell it like it is. You've got to love this, Tozer, quote, if you do not like what I am saying, I want to ask you something. Think about the company you run with. What do they talk about most? God and the love of God or other things? You, you decide that. Many Christians today will not endure sound doctrine. Paul described these people as having itching ears. They did not like sound doctrine, but they were Christians. They called themselves Christians, but their ears were itchy. They will not endure sound doctrine. I think that is a description of the churches. In the light of the New Testament predictions slash prophecies, teachings and standards, is what I just said about the prevailing religious mood untrue? Is what I just said about the prevailing religious mood uncharitable? Is it extreme? I do not think it is. But I only ask you to do one thing. Look around you and look in your own heart. See which of these pictures describes the churches you know. Now I have to confess that as a pastor, I have this sanctified bitter sweetness in all of this by virtue of the prophetic implications of all of this, and I'll explain what I mean. It's bitter because of the lukewarm condition of the last days Laodicean church, but sweet because it is the last days of the church, namely the last days before the rapture of the church, which is sound doctrine. And ironically, it's the irony of ironies, this sound doctrine is the very truth that many have turned from in their turning to lies. 
couple weeks back on Thursday nights, we're going through Jeremiah. Man, it's been such a rich blessing. On Thursday, September 29th, we were in chapter 27 and 28, which I have to say eerily parallels the Second Timothy 4 prophecy. And here's how I get there. Jeremiah prophesied sound doctrine of God's Word of Truth. He preached the Word. He proclaimed the unpopular prophecies and messages. But the false prophets, of which there were many, there were no shortage of them, and great numbers were flocking to them, because we're told four times in chapter 27 that they would prophesy a lie to the people. And this prophesying of a lie was for those with itching ears to hear what the false prophets would say. When a false prophet named Hananiah confronts and contradicts Jeremiah's sound doctrine, Jeremiah does not walk it back, tone it down, soften it up. No, he boldly, with an unflinching fearlessness, speaks the truth. Jeremiah 28, beginning in verse 15, Then the prophet Jeremiah said to Hananiah the prophet, Hear now, Hananiah, the Lord has not sent you. Oh, would to God that there would be a holy boldness among the men of God, a sanctified strength among the people of God. The Lord has not sent you, but you make this people trust in a lie. Therefore, thus says the Lord, Behold, I will cast you from the face of the earth. This year you shall die, because you have taught rebellion against the Lord. You're not bringing people to the Lord. You're turning people away from the Lord. So Hananiah the prophet died the same year in the seventh month. Okay. All that to say this. The Hananiahs of today have been met with a stunning success in making the people turn from the truth, and as such, trust in a lie. And if you'll kindly allow me to, I'd like to expound on this for the remainder of our time together. And in order to do that, we'll go ahead at this time and end the YouTube and Facebook live stream. So I appreciate your grace for me and with me and patience with me. 
Um, I need to preface this, it's incumbent upon me, to lovingly and humbly say what I'm about to say is only for those with ears to hear what the Spirit is saying to the church today. What I'm about to say is not for those with itching ears, it's only for those with ears to hear. And here's why. The Lord has not given me, nor will He ever give me the permission to cease from preaching the whole counsel of God's Word and speaking the truth in love, because of love. Were I to cower and falter like the other pastors, as the statistics clearly bear out, then I would have your blood on my hands before the Lord. And this is Ezekiel chapter 3, verses 17 through 19. Son of man, I have made you a watchman for the house of Israel. Therefore hear a word from my mouth, and give them warning from me. When I say to the wicked, you shall surely die, and you give him no warning, nor speak to warn the wicked from his wicked way to save his life, that same wicked man shall die in his iniquity, but his blood I will require at your hand. Yet, if you warn the wicked, and he does not turn from his wickedness, nor from his wicked way, he shall die in his iniquity. But you have delivered your soul. This is very selfish of me, actually, because I'm trying to save my own bacon here. In all seriousness, I I shriek in horror to think of ever having the blood of anyone's souls on my hands, all because I shrink back and refuse to warn the people about what's coming. What follows is the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, so help me God. The truth is the proof in the prophetic evidence, again, for those with an ear to hear. What evidence? What proof? In a word, deception. Deception. Jesus, first thing, deception. Let no man deceive you. The Apostle Paul echoes the Savior, do not be deceived. Number one sign, you're going to know it's the end when there is this deception. It's a powerful deception, as we'll see here in a moment. 
So powerful is this deception that were it possible, Jesus said, thank God it's not, by the grace of God it's not, but so powerful is this deception that it could even in fact deceive the very elect. That's how powerful the deception is. This deception is the main sign more than any other sign that we're at the end. And dare I say that the world today has been deceived and believed the lie, due in large measure to a rejecting and turning from the truth. And this is Second Thessalonians 2, a prophecy and passage I'm sure you're familiar with. Let me begin reading in verse 9. The coming of the lawless one will be in accordance with the work of Satan, displayed in all kinds of counterfeit miracles, signs and wonders, and in every sort of evil that, listen, deceives those who are perishing. They perish because they refuse to love the truth, and so be saved. For this reason, God sends them a powerful delusion, so that they will believe the lie, and so that all will be condemned who have not believed the truth, but have delighted in wickedness. If you were to ask me what I thought was the most powerful deception and lie today, my answer would have to be, hands down, COVID-19. And the reason being is that it has and is and will continue to usher in an injection that many believe, present company included, will ultimately become the mark of the beast prophesied in Revelation during the seven-year tribulation. This deception has been planned for many, many decades, but it went into hyperdrive after September the 11th, 2001, by way of what we know as anthrax. The little known and much less talked about truth, truth concerning 9-11 is the mandated anthrax vaccine that ensued in the aftermath. Though an experimental anthrax vaccine was in place prior, 9-11 became the impetus to force and threaten military personnel. So much so that the legal battles, reminiscent, by the way, of that which we're seeing today, made their way all the way to the Supreme Court of the United States. One such case was filed in the Supreme Court of the United States against the Department of the Navy. 
The question presented to the Supreme Court was, quote, whether the Court of Appeals erred in upholding the Navy's decision to remove petitioners for refusing to obey an order to receive a mandatory vaccine. 2001. Ironically, the judgment of the Court of Appeals was entered on September 11, 2002, exactly one year after September the 11th, 2001. On page five of this U.S. Supreme Court case, which we've provided a link to, it states, and I quote, the Court of Appeals correctly concluded that the Navy had authority to remove petitioners when they refused to undergo vaccination for anthrax before their deployment to an area where the military has determined there to be a high threat for biological attack. The decision of the Court of Appeals does not conflict with any decision of this court or any other Court of Appeals. Further review is not warranted. Translated, they ruled in favor of the United States Navy and against those who were refusing this vaccine mandate of an anthrax vaccine. It's important to note that one Anthony Fauci was at the helm of this back then. And it's evidenced by this September 5th article published by Just the News. According to an author, then Vice President Dick Cheney, under then President George W. Bush, elevated Anthony Fauci to the top of the U.S. biodefense research apparatus post 9-11. My assistant pastor, Mac, gave me permission to share his experience when given the anthrax injection. In 2001, all deployable units to the Middle East were ordered to have their service members take the anthrax vax, which would consist of three different shots. Once assigned to my fourth submarine USS Boise out of Norfolk, Virginia, I was ordered to take the vax due to our upcoming deployment to the region. We all had to sign what is known as a page 13, which is basically a sworn statement that removes any and all liability from the government while forcing service members into submitting to this or face punitive actions. Since I was not well informed nor thought much about it having received numerous shots in the past. I signed the form and took the first round of the anthrax vax. The first thing to note was the knot that it left on my arm as well as others for quite some time. If I recall correctly, this knot stayed for at least a few weeks and remained sensitive to the touch. To this day, I remember where that shot was administered. Other than that, 
there were no immediate issues that I noticed, but then I started having several heart and joint related issues. Both have never ceased and have only been mitigated with medication and surgeries. Specifically, I developed severe osteoporosis in nearly all of my main joints, hips, shoulders, knees, spine, lower and upper. As such, a bone density scan was conducted, and the thickness of my bones have been determined to be significantly below average and continued to be monitored. Both hips have since been replaced. Bone spurs in both knees have been and continue to be treated. I have had three separate heart procedures in order to treat irregular heartbeats and will be on heart and rheumatoid arthritis medication for the rest of my life. My severe conditions have been linked to the anthrax vax, but as a military vet who signed a page 13, I have no ability to sue for any damages. I am receiving disability that includes my major ailments, but there is no telling how many years this has taken off of my life. I never took the second and third shot. Thank God that I did not. Okay, doubtless you already know where I'm going with this and probably even why I'm going there with this. So I'll just get right to the point. The 9-11 deception, deception paved the way for the COVID-19 deception. And the proverbial proof is in the prophetic pudding of the evidence. Evidence. As such, I'll briefly address two questions. However, and please hear me, I do so not for those looking for an argument, rather only those looking for answers. So please, please, I make that appeal. Question number one, if there were no planes on 9-11, what happened to the people on those planes? Answer, there were people on those planes, some of whom made cell phone and or air phone calls. However, they had to have been made from an undisclosed location on the ground and not in the air by virtue of the cell phone technology, certainly back in 2001. And I would even argue present day. I haven't been on a plane since 2019 of my own volition, by the way, that's by choice. And I have no intentions, unless the Lord says otherwise, to ever get on another airplane again. But for those of you that do fly, are you able to make cell phone calls from the plane over 1800? feet of altitude, 100, not 30,000. I, I tried, by the way. Oh, you, you have too, I'm sure. You know, they say, make sure all your devices are turned off. I'm, I'm like, why? 
Oh, because it interferes with the, the signals. Oh, well, I forgot to turn it off one time. There was no interference. Oh, come on, you're laughing because you did the same thing. So what did you do? You did what I did. You looked at your phone like, oh, hey, oh, it's on. Oh, it's on an airplane mode. Oh, no service. We're 10 minutes into the flight. No service. We're maybe 2,000 feet. No service. Okay, so they made calls, right? Yeah, they recorded them. Yes. But those calls could not have been made, connected, or remain connected for the amount of time they were recorded. This according to the official reports concerning the speeds and altitudes they alleged the planes were traveling. Pictured here is a screenshot at the one hour and 50 minute mark from a five hour documentary, which if you're interested, we've provided a link to that too. Watch it, will you? I mean, just skip that episode on Netflix and watch this instead. Sorry, that was kind of mean, but it answers this with proof and evidence, evidence and proof. In the interest of time, I'll simply mention one well-known case, not involving a cell phone call, but an air phone call to Lisa Jefferson, a GTA air phone operator. Like with the other calls, there was no background noise at all. Also, Lisa Jefferson testified that she did not lose a connection, this is from the air phone, when the plane allegedly crashed. Actually, the connection remained open for another 45 minutes after the plane had supposedly disintegrated. Question number two. What do you say to those who claim that they saw planes hit the towers? couple of thoughts, the first of which is the neuroscience of cognitive dissonance can overpower the human brain. Pictured here is a screenshot from another documentary we provided a link to, it's only two hours, <laughs> in which Dr. Lori A. Manuel speaks on the topic of psychological resistance to alternative accounts. Listen to what she had to say. There are many theories as to why some people refuse to look at evidence that the official account is false. The human brain is the most complex organism in the body and thus the mechanisms by which the mind processes interpret and responds to information is equally complex. At any one time, this organ is processing an infinite amount of information, both from its internal and external environment, most of which we are unconscious of. Even those thoughts, feelings, and behaviors that we adamantly believe to be consciously determined. We assume that 
when we are looking at something, we are consciously analyzing it based upon the visual information that is entering the brain from the eyes. But this is not entirely accurate. You can experience an emotional reaction to something before you are consciously aware that you have even seen it, which in turn then affects how you see it. Alternative explanations of political assassinations, terrorist attacks, and other national tragedies that differ from the official state accounts are sometimes dismissed by the general public because they evoke strong cognitive dissonance, a psychological phenomenon which occurs when new ideas or information conflict with previously formed ideologies and accepted beliefs. Can I add narratives? Narratives? Second thought to this question of those who claim they saw planes. I want to refer you to this YouTube video posted on September 11th, 2017, which as of Friday had over 4 million views, titled, Flight Attendant Sheds New Light on 9-11. In it, Rebecca Roth, a foremost expert on 9-11, with about 30 years of her career as an international flight attendant, brings light to what really occurred on that fateful day. And if you don't mind, I would just like to quote briefly from the transcript. I started doing thousands of hours of research. I used all of my years of training and the information that I discovered was literally so mind-blowing, it made me physically sick when I really figured out what had happened, and how it happened, and who did it, and how it was covered up. We've also provided a link to her website for those that are interested. Okay. I suppose the question now is, Pastor, <laughs> with all due respect, how does knowing all of this, this mind-blowing, sickening truth about what's really happening, how does that bring me to Jesus? Well, thankfully, we have the words of Jesus that answer this for us, specifically as it relates to how the lie is the catalyst for the truth. At the end of the day, the only way any of us, myself included, can come to the truth is vis-a-vis -vis the Holy Spirit as the Spirit of truth. Listen to what Jesus said, John 16, beginning in verse 12. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. I find that interesting. However, when He, the Spirit of truth, has come, 
He will guide you into all truth. For He will not speak on His own authority, but whatever He hears, He will speak, and He will tell you things to come. He will glorify Me, for He will take of what is Mine and declare it to you. All things that the Father has are Mine. Therefore I said that He will take of Mine and declare it to you. Listen, I can be up here taking my life into my own hands, quite literally I might add, and do updates like this and present evidence like this every day, all day, every night, all night. But it's the Holy Spirit that guides us all into the truth. Listen, I, if I could be so candid and share with you that I've been in reliving <clears throat> 9-11. It's been more than one occasion where I've just had <clears throat> to walk away just have a good cry. I always feel good after a good cry, you know. You know how that is? All of the people that died. I remember my uncle saying to me one time, he was uh, from Iraq. He married, uh, his wife was from uh, Iraq. They lived in Baghdad for many, many years and then immigrated to America. And he told me one day, he said, Wahid, I, uh, America is killing the Iraqi people. And at first I was talking about cognitive dissonance. You know, we're fighting for freedom. But a lot of these Iraqis, this is just Iraq. I mean, you've got Afghanistan, you've got all of these. These are people that Jesus died for, by the way. And um, I don't mean to be mean when I say this, but Jesus loves them as much as He loves you and me. You can find the statistics on your own. It's literally millions of people in the Middle East. But just reliving the events of that day and just the trauma, I've actually had to ask the Lord to kind of protect my heart. It's so disturbing, it's so troubling, it's so hard to hear and hard to bear. But <laughs> it can also be that which leads me to the truth about this evil and fallen world, not our home. Isn't it true that it's when our hearts are troubled, knowing that we've been deceived, that we're propelled to the truth, Jesus, in whom we've believed. That's the effect that it had on me. I got physically sick too. And for those of you who know me, I'm, I'm a crier. Paul cried a lot. Oh, by the way, Jesus cried too, so I'm just being like Jesus. So 
but I'll be the first to admit, I mean, I've wept so over this and still do. The Lord directed me to John 14, settles my heart, ministers my, to my heart, comforts my heart. You know it well. Spoiler alert, it's about the rapture, <laughs> which is why it's one of my favorite verses in all the Bible, along with all the other verses in all the Bible. But Jesus said, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. Wait, where are you am, that I'm going to be also? Your Father's house? Yeah. Wait, you're taking me out of here? When? <laughs> you're taking me there, to where you are? in your Father's house, where there are many mansions? Yeah. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you, a bridal chamber. And where I go, you know, and the way you know. Now Thomas, verse 5, and he, this poor guy, I think there's going to be a very long line in heaven of people apologizing to this guy. I think that the line will be almost as big as the line of people apologizing to Peter. But anyway, I think it gets a lot of bad press. Jesus loved Thomas, and Thomas was a thinker, I think, very analytical. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going and how we can know the way. Notice Jesus' response. Actually, conspicuously absent from his responses, any rebuke, like, come on, Thomas, what's the matter with you? No. And never imagine a harsh tone coming from the Savior. Even when he would say to the disciples, oh, ye of little faith, never imagine that there was a disgust or a disdain in his voice. No, it was a compassion and a love. Jesus said to him, I, you'll forgive me, but it's kind of like, Thomas, I am the way, the truth, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Oh, I wonder if Thomas just embraced the Savior. Well, let me try to wrap it up. <clears throat> Think about this. Is this not how it's going to be for Israel as a nation, coming to salvation in the seven-year tribulation? Is it not true that it will be the deception in the lie of the Antichrist that brings them 
to a saving knowledge of their true Christ. It serves as the catalyst. When they realize they've been deceived by the lie of the Antichrist, they will come to the truth, Jesus Christ. And I'll take it one step further, and we're almost done, and I appreciate your patience. So too is this true for every single one of us. If you think about it, it's when we realize that we're living a lie, that we've broken God's law, that we've sinned against God, that we're led by our tutor to the truth, the Savior, the Christ, Jesus Christ. This is what Paul wrote to the Galatians in chapter 3, verse 24. Therefore the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ so that we may be justified by faith. Well, here's the bottom line. It's only when my hope in this world, this life, has been shaken, that I'll put my hope in Jesus for eternal life. Let me say the same thing in a different way. Those who have the hardest time with sound doctrine and a prophecy update like this today are the ones that are still holding out hope in this world. I, I hate to use the expression, but for lack of a better one, um, they need to have their world rocked by the rock, the rock of our salvation, where you are so shaken, you realize, wait a minute, I've been deceived. I believed a lie. And here's the Holy Spirit going, I can, I can take you to the truth. Let's go. Let's go. Jesus is the truth. That's how and why knowing this and me doing this is so important. Because when you realize this is the deception, it propels you to Jesus. I know it has for me. And in the process, and I'm sorry, I'm yelling. It's a custom in my country. That's my story, and I'm sticking with it. In so doing, it has had the much needed effect. I'm speaking for myself personally, of just like, man, you can have this world. Just give me Jesus. Just give me Jesus. That's why we do these updates. That's the whole point, really, is to get Jesus to people and people to Jesus. 
It's the good news of salvation in the person of Jesus Christ. It's a simple childlike explanation of salvation by way of the ABCs of salvation. Kindly allow me to weave into the fabric of the ABCs the good news, which is what the word gospel means. Good news, your debt has been paid, you're free to go. That's what the word gospel means. Well, how does that work? Well, it works like this. We've all broken God's law. We've all sinned. And unless and until we come to that place where we realize that we've sinned, that we're a sinner, why would we have any interest in the Savior? Romans 3.10 says, There is no one righteous, not even one. And Romans 3.23 tells us why. It's because all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We were all born sinners, which is why Jesus said we must be born again to enter the kingdom of heaven. And by the way, the aforementioned statistic, heartbreaking statistic concerning pastors, senior pastors. Uh, 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 how do I say this? Well, I'll just say it. There's going to be a lot of very good people in hell. There's going to be a lot of very, very bad people in heaven, and I'll be at the front of that line. You won't be too far behind, so don't look at me all spiritually. Here, yeah. Let's talk about the good news. Well, I think the bad news needs to be first. You know how when someone comes to you and says, hey, I've got good news and I've got bad news, which one do you want first? I usually tell them, I just want the good news, tell the bad news to somebody else. No, you need to know the bad news first, because the bad or the bad news is, the good or the good news will be. I know that's not proper English. Please don't email me. I got enough emails, okay? What's the bad news? Well, uh, there's a penalty for your sin. The wages of sin is death, and it's the death penalty. That's the bad news. You ready for the good news? Yeah, let's hear it. Okay. Jesus came and died when He was crucified, and He was buried, and He rose again on the third day, and as He just got done telling us, is coming back again one day to take us to that place that He prepared for us. Boy, that is good news. Where do I sign? No need. He already did. Well, how do I? No, he, he already paid the price in full. We are not our own. We've been purchased by the blood of Jesus Christ that was shed in our stead for the remission of our sin. Good news. And it's a gift He paid for, and He gives us this gift. What gift? The gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Listen, from where I come from, that's a really good deal. I'll take it. Amen. You mean, I, I either am sentenced to death for all eternity in hell, or I can receive this gift of God, 
of eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord? Yeah. Uh, how do I receive the gift? Belief. That's the B. Believe in your heart that Jesus Christ is Lord. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever would believe would not perish, but have everlasting life. Romans 10, 9 and 10 says, if you believe in your heart that God raised Jesus from the dead, you will be saved. And the C lastly is for call upon the name of the Lord, or as Romans 10, 9 and 10 also says, if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified, and it is with your mouth that you confess and are saved. And lastly, Romans 10.13. I love Romans 10.13. It says, all who call upon the name of the Lord will, will be saved. I implore you today, if you've never called upon Him, believing in your heart, today is the day of salvation. I want to, again, I appreciate your patience. I'm going to do something a little bit different today for the But God testimony and share with you an email that we received that speaks to today's prophecy update. Maybe I would be again grossly remiss were I not to preface it by saying that it, this is, you know, maybe we should all bow our heads and close our eyes. You can slip out. But this is only for those with ears to hear. Okay. All right. You want to hear it? Okay. Comes from Shimon Joseph, who writes, Stay strong, Brother J.D. Your prophecy update message, which included comments and links regarding 9-11, <laughs> have apparently struck a sensitive nerve amongst the body of Christ and of those who are more well known as prophecy teachers. You know how I feel about that. Like rats on a sinking ship, they are coming out of the woodwork. To coin a phrase you often use, is that a bit much? Are we okay? <laughs> I love this guy. Far be it from me to ask you to do or not to do something. But I will say this, please do not retract what you preached. Please don't capitulate. The 9-11 tragedy has become for the body of Christ most akin to some type of holy grail. We worship at its memory. We elevate the dead to a near iconic status. The narrative is sacrosanct, so much so that if one like yourself dares to question what teachers, preachers, and leaders have previously said, a rush to condemn the alternate voice like yours is squashed immediately. Your current study through Jeremiah 
is making one of many things abundantly clear. As in the prophet's day, people don't want truth, especially truth that goes against an established dogma. We have our truth, they say. We have made holy the event by clothing it in American patriotism, they chortle. We have the right view, and let all who question our narrative be anathema, they pontificate. No. Over the years of watching and being blessed by your prophecy updates, you have shared inconvenient truths, which were cutting edge. Many were rejected by the popular prophecy experts. Again, you know how I feel about them. Only to find them coming to pass as the Lord directed you to preach it. Lastly, I am not sure how many believers have written you expressing what I am about to write. I voted for President Trump, but as I love to hear you say. I also watched him make decisions that caused me to both question and to sense alarm. Then during one of your prophecy updates, you made this comment, which solidified the whole thing. By the way, like your 9-11 comments, it didn't go over well at all. I wish I could remember which prophecy update it was. Anyway, you said, do we really want four more years? Wow! It was there with that simple truth that I realized, no! <laughs> Let's get this show on the road. This guy's been listening to me way too long. <laughs> Come quickly, Lord Jesus. I don't want four more years of this. I want to go home. My goodness, how things are changing so fast. I love when you say, this is the end. This is how it ends. So where am I going with this? I'm telling you, you listen to me way too long. <laughs> so many believers are being duped with the second coming of Trump. He is a trap. I loved when you preached in another update that he could not be trusted. I admire you, brother, that you stand up for righteousness and truth. I love that you are not afraid to preach the truth. 9-11 was an inside job. 3,000 engineers with no horse in the race, so to speak, cannot be wrong. CGI technology can make anything appear real, etc. I love you, brother. I love you too, man. <laughs> Can't wait to meet you in glory soon and very soon. With gratitude, your brother, Shimon Joseph. Capono, come on up. Why don't you go ahead and stand. Oh, I love that. Soon and very soon, we are going to see the King. Soon and very soon, we are going to see the King. Take it, Capono. <laughs> soon and very soon, we are going to see the King.
Hallelujah, hallelujah, we're gonna see the King.